Well, good morning. You guys may be seated. Good morning. Oh, one more time. Good morning. All right, man. I hope that you guys had a great time celebrating this past week. I know we had an amazing time as a family. Um, well, real quick, hey, my name is Gus Hernandez. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and Pastor Carlos is out of town this Sunday. He's preaching at a sister church in Chicago, and uh, he sent me a text this morning saying he misses y'all, he's praying for y'all, and then he sent me a picture of how cold it was outside, and he said, dog, we live in paradise. <laughs> I said, yeah, we do. <laughs> I was like, recently, my family, we drove up to the Tennessee, Georgia state line where I have some family there, and you know, it was nice and cold. It was fun. I can endure for a couple days, and then I'm like, give me that Miami heat, baby. You know what I'm saying? Like, come back to that warmth. Let that just warm you up. It's amazing. I love it. Miss it. How many of you guys are like turkey people in this room? I'm just curious. Some turkey people? I kind of, in the words of Jeff Garcia Shepard, I, I came to break the rules this, this year for Thanksgiving, and I slow smoked a brisket. Fam, that was the best decision we ever made. Like, forget that turkey. Like, give me brisket. It was so, so good. I think that's going to be my new tradition. It's like, man, turkey's all right. It's good. Some people make a really good one, not going to lie. But when you got the choice between brisket and turkey, it's going to be brisket. But uh, anyways, so I digress. Let's get into this message. Today, we are wrapping up our series called A Generous Life, and we're looking at a passage in 1 Chronicles uh, chapter 29. As you guys are turning there in your Bibles or opening up your Bible apps to that passage, I want to start off by helping us get our minds wrapped around this theme. And I want to draw you into a story about kids. And if there's one thing I've noticed about this entire room, there's one common trait that is true about every single person that's in this room today. You know what it is? At some point, you were a kid, right? All of you here, at some point, you were a child. And can I tell you, raising kids, man, is a blessing and is also very difficult. And one of the challenges with raising kids is helping them, like, learn how to navigate just stuff and their possessions. And so I have two daughters, and throughout this season, currently, I've been using this app called Greenlight to help them kind of manage and learn about finances and wealth. And so this app lets me give them, like, debit cards assigned to them. They get these digital apps on their iPads where they can see how much money is in their different accounts, one for spending, one for saving, one for giving. And then later, as they get older, I can unlock, like, investing and teach them about how to invest in ETFs and different things like that. And so I'm using them and teaching this uh, to them, like, how to use money and how to, like, understand how to save up, how to give, all this kind of stuff. And it's fun. But I'll never forget, like, one of my daughters, as soon as that debit card came in the mail, and here's the thing. Do they have jobs? No. They're 11 and 8. Who puts the money in that account? Dad. Right? The money's coming from me. But here's the cool thing. My daughter gets her first debit card, and the first thing she wants to do is she wants to treat me to gelato. Oh, come on, man. That was like, I was like, girl, you can have whatever you want. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, oh. Now, did I sit there, and was I ungrateful because, bro, I put the money in the account. It's my money. You're basically buying me ice cream with my money. No. You know why I was so warmed up by that? Because it showed me like now it was in her possession and it was a reflection of her heart. Like what she wanted to do was something that had been deposited to her account and it just like melted my heart. Now, it wasn't always like that. And it's not always going to be like that. Because there's this season where all of us as kids, we go through this season where we have this word that we use all the time. You know what it is? Mine. Right? Every little two-year-old you've ever seen, they grasp it, mine. You try to take it from them, mine, right? And they just like run around. 
And this same daughter that just treated, I have a very specific instance where I remember I always like to take my girls out to like these little daddy-daughter dates and we're sharing a meal together. Y'all, we're some sucker for some tater tots. I love some tater tots. So she orders tater tots with her kids' meal and I go to reach over there to grab the tater tots. You know, a little dad tax. She pulls the thing, like, no, mine. And I'm like, girl, I bought that meal. Give me a tater tot. You know what I'm saying? And I'm sitting there thinking, like, how silly, because she doesn't understand who's sitting at the table with her. Like, if I wanted to, I could make it rain tater tots on this table. Like, I could replace the tater tot I'm going to eat from your plate if I wanted to. But in that moment, it was like mine. Like, this is my tater tot, and I'm keeping this thing. And so we go through those different seasons, and as parents, oftentimes we like to test our children to see what truly has a grip of their heart. And can I tell you, the Lord does the same thing with us. There's different tests that the Lord will do and send our way as a way to see what truly has a grip of our heart. And in today's passage, what we're going to see as we conclude this series, A Generous Life, is we're going to pop into the middle of a story where King David is celebrating the generosity of God's people as they had just collected an incredible and very impressive offering to build the future temple for the Lord. And in the middle of this passage, we're going to step into this prayer that David is praying in front of the whole assembly as a way to worship God, as a way to frame everything that they had done with the proper perspective. And this passage is going to focus on these different highlights that show us the depths of a generous life that rightly stewards and manages the things that God has entrusted to us. And if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to do so. Write down this simple sentence. Here's kind of our big idea. Here's where we're headed for the next few moments in our sermon. It's simply this. Kingdom-focused stewardship recognizes that God is the owner and the giver of everything that we have. Kingdom-focused stewardship recognizes that God is the owner and the giver of everything that we have. That means our money is God's money. Our spending is God's spending. We are called to use our possessions, our wealth, as a way to bless God and to bless others. So let's go back to this passage, picking up in verse 10. We're going to read the first seven verses down to verse 16. Then David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, may you be blessed, Lord God of our father Israel, from eternity to eternity. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the splendor and the majesty. For everything in the heavens and on earth belongs to you. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. And you are exalted as head over all. Verse 12. Riches and honor come from you. You are the ruler of everything. Power and might are in your hand, and it is in your hand to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? For everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. For we are mere aliens and temporary residents in your presence, as were all our ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord, our God, all this wealth that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand because everything belongs to you. 
Man, we're going to look at four truths from this passage, and the first one is this. Stewardship recognizes the sovereignty of God. Stewardship recognizes the sovereignty of God. At this juncture in Israel's history, we see King David, who's now an old man nearing the end of his life. He knew that his reign as king was about to come to an end, and he had even just recently appointed his son Solomon to be the successor and the future king of Israel. This was the final chapter of a well-lived life. But he had one desire that he wanted to see happen, is he wanted the people of God to build a temple for God. And so at the end of his life, he had given all of his wealth to the building of God's temple as a gift back to the Lord. Everything that he had accumulated as king, he donates it to the building of this king. And then he sends an encouragement to all the leaders in the land. So, hey, here's what I'm going to do. And I want to encourage you to match or do something and give to the building. And God's leaders in the nation of Israel, they start to respond. Then there's a trickle-down effect. Then all the people start hearing about it, and everyone starts to contribute. And it is impressive. You want to see the, the amounts of what they collected, you just read up ahead earlier in chapter 29 and read some of chapter 28. And it tells you they physically collected tons of precious metals, like tons, like thousands of pounds of building materials to build and decorate God's future home, God's temple among them. And in the middle of this, we catch a prayer from King David as an outpouring of worship to recognize the sovereignty of God in the midst of everything that they had done. I think this is so beautiful and it's so important that David's prayer begins by focusing on God's sovereignty. Now, notice what David's not doing. David is not trying to minimize the gifts that had been collected, but he knew that their generosity as a people was simply the byproduct of God's mercy and faithfulness. Like the offerings that King David made, the offerings that the people of Israel made were possible because God first had given them stuff. It's like he framed his entire role as a steward, as a manager. He framed his entire point of view and generosity on the simple fact and truth that God is sovereign, that he is over all and owns everything. And he recognized that he himself was the recipient of God's grace and God's mercy and God's gifts. And I want to put this phrase on the screen. And I think this is the beginning of a very important shift mentally for us, a right perspective of wealth, a right perspective of wealth and possessions begins with this recognition that everything we have belongs to God and comes from God. This is huge. This is important. As you study the scriptures from Old Testament to New Testament, there's a simple phrase that you will see re-emphasized over and over and over again, and it helps us understand who God is and who we are not. And the phrase is this, God is sovereign. Like God is the supreme ruler over everything that exists in this universe, and you and I are not. And so as we start to recognize who God is, it helps shape everything else that we do. And so from here, we see this concept of stewardship emerge from the text. And simply, a steward is someone who manages something that was entrusted to them. And David is praying this prayer, recognizing that that's been his role this whole time. Like, even though, yes, I have all these resources, even though I have all of this wealth that I've accumulated, it's not even mine. And the only reason I've had it under my care is because, God, you were good enough to let me have it under my care. And so I give it back, and I'm giving to you as a form of worship. 
And I've shared this principle with you guys before, but I want to share it again. And we had this phrase that we've looked at a couple times in previous sermons throughout this year, and it's simply this. A right view of God leads to a right view of self. Let's say that again. Like when you start to develop a right view of God, you have a better view of yourself. The more you understand who God is and what he has done for you, the more you understand your true identity and purpose in life. Like the more you understand that God is sovereign, that God is the creator and owner of everything, the more you understand the responsibility that you have to live this life. But the minute you lose sight of that, you start to lose focus on what truly matters in this life. Now, I know in a room this size, there's still some of you wrestling with this. Like, man, there's, there's some part of you that is wrestling because you feel like, man, no, I've contributed. Like, I have earned this. I have done this. I have made this. I have built this. I have accomplished this, right? We want to go to this, like, form. And, and I want to just, like, share this one simple truth because this helps kind of reframe everything. And is this, everything that you and I make first starts with something God has already made. I mean, think about that. There's not a single thing you and I can cultivate and create from scratch that doesn't start first with something that God has already made. Even think about some of the most impressive structures that you've seen, like architecturally. Where did you get that steel? You mined the dirt for some ore, and you took those metals, and you heated them, and you created something special. But what did you start with? Something God had already created. You can take that into every facet of life. There's not a single thing that you can create from nothing because everything starts with something that God has already made. Now, I know some of you are like, no, but it's my creative genius. Okay. Like, who created the mind that lets you create that song lyric? Who created the mind that lets you put that short story into print? God. There's not a single thing that you and I make where we can exclude God from the equation and take all the credit. Everything that you and I make starts by using something that God has already made. And the minute you start to wrestle with that, the minute you understand that, it starts to unlock your purpose in life. It starts to help you navigate life and make better choices. Such an understanding of God and his sovereignty is going to stand in sharp contrast to what the world around us is constantly sharing. The world around us wants us to develop this natural prideful illusion of self-sufficiency, like you got this on your own. You do you. You got this. You are the captain of your own ship. And the more you study scripture, the more you realize, no, you're not. And you are not in control. And you can't create stuff out of nothing. And you desperately need God. You can't make this on your own. So now that we understand the, the sovereignty of God as it shapes our understanding of, of stewardship, let's examine another key truth in this passage. And the second truth is this. Stewardship requires surrender. Kingdom-focused stewardship is going to require surrender. Look at verse 17. I know, my God, that you test the heart and that you are pleased with what is right. I have willingly given all these things with an upright heart. And now I have seen your people who are present here, giving joyfully and willingly to you. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our ancestors, Keep this desire forever in the thoughts of the hearts of your people and confirm their hearts towards you. Look at verse 19 here. In the middle of this prayer, he pauses and asks for a specific prayer request for his son who's about to be put in charge. Give my son Solomon 
an undivided heart to keep and carry out all your commands, your decrees, and your statutes to build the building for which I have made provision. Here's what I love. A generous life is a life that is surrendered to the Lord and his ways. This is ultimately what God is seeking after. He's going to test our hearts, and he wants to know that we are truly surrendered to him and to his ways. David explains that it is impossible to try to deceive God. In fact, if you go back a chapter to chapter 28, he's talking to Solomon, and he uses some examples there where he's talking about God knows the very thoughts and intentions of every human being's heart. And here again, he's acknowledging that in his prayer in, in chapter 29. He says, God, you know my heart posture when I gave this gift. And so it's important for us to recognize, like, as we seek to be good stewards, as we seek to be generous people, that it is impossible for us to try to deceive God and to, like, make him think that what we're giving is our best. To make him think that what we're giving is because we're joyful and we want to worship him, but really we're giving out of compulsion and guilt. It's impossible to deceive the Lord. He knows what's going on in your heart. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows exactly who's giving willingly. He knows those who are truly devoted to him. But there's a couple phrases in this section of verses that I absolutely loved. Both of them are found in verse 17. The first is the one David used to describe his own giving. He says, Lord, you know that I gave from an upright heart. What a powerful phrase. And basically what he's saying is like, Lord, you know I gave from a right posture. Like I wanted to do something righteous with the things that you had entrusted me with. I want to do something to advance your kingdom with what you gave me. And, and here's a principle that we see emerge a lot as you study the scriptures. A righteous life produces a generous life. A righteous life, a life wanting to do what is right in the eyes of the Lord, will produce a generous life. Like instead of going around closed-fisted, like holding on to everything you have as mine, a righteous life that wants to do what is good and right will honor God with their stuff. We'll see a need and want to meet a need. We'll live open-handed because everything I have, God, I only have because you gave it to me. But God, how can I use what I have to do what is right? God, how can I use what I've accumulated and amassed through the talents that you've blessed me with to help somebody in need? How can I use what you've given me, God, to advance the good news of Jesus Christ in this city and around the world? A righteous life produces a generous life. And then it bleeds over from the leader to his people. I love this. He goes on to describe the people that had gathered at this celebration moment. And he acknowledges their presence before God. He said, God, the people that are gathered here, even they gave, look at this, this phrase, joyfully and willingly. Man, that's beautiful. I think churches and stuff have definitely like mistaught giving in the past. We've acknowledged this earlier in our series We've talked about some of the bad things we've seen practice in religion and different churches. But the one thing we want to tell you as a church here is, man, we want to create a culture of generosity. And we're not going to be shy about it. We're going to talk about it, but always from the right heart posture. Never from guilt trips, not from like domineering conversations. The posture that honors God is not one of control and one of guilt. The one posture that God looks for is here in this text. He wants to see that the people have willingly and joyfully come to offer to him what rightfully belongs to him anyways. When we get to that posture, we start to truly experience the joy of the Lord. And that's what we want to be. We want to be a generous church that gives from a right posture, a right spirit back to the Lord. 
But there's this beautiful pivot that happened there, and we caught it at the end, where David goes from talking about his posture in giving, talking about the people's posture in giving, and then he offers a very specific prayer request to God for his very own son. Now think about this for just a moment. He asks in verse 19 that the Lord would give Solomon an undivided heart. It's another way to be translated as loyal and fully devoted. Now think about this scenario. David is nearing the end of his life, and he recognizes that they just collected tons, thousands and thousands of pounds of gold and silver and other precious metals, timber, and all the stuff they need to build the house of God. But he knows he's about to die, and he's not going to see the construction of the temple in his lifetime. He recognizes that his son is going to be placed as king over Israel, and as king over Israel has access to the treasury and the donations that were given. Do you know how tempting it is to become the ruler of an entire nation and to have at your disposal thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of gold? You know the temptation that that must cause a leader? And so David praying for his son that his son would not have a divided heart, that his son would be fully committed to God and to carry out what he had been entrusted with building the temple for God. Like he had a very specific mission given to him by God. You find that out in chapter 28. If you want to go back one chapter, God had appointed Solomon to be the one that would build his temple. So he's given a very specific task. And here David is praying for his son to have an undivided heart. And what, you, what I love here is we see a surrendered heart is an undivided heart that has become fully devoted and fully committed to the Lord. It's not a heart that's torn between serving two masters. And I think this is really important for us because in our day and age, it's so easy to get caught in the middle, right? You want to do things for God, and yet there's all these other pursuits that you have in life. And we catch ourselves wrestling between two masters, like God as the true one Lord of all, and then we try to serve other pursuits in life. For many of us, it's the pursuit of money and wealth and accumulation of stuff, right? Like we're pursuing that kind of thing, and we're caught oftentimes in, in this tension between these two masters. And what David is praying for his son is that, God, I don't want him to be stuck in between two worlds. I want him to have a right view of this because he's fully committed to you. Like I want him to be sold out, committed to you and your ways, and let that shape how he handles everything in this world. And that's my prayer for you, because guys, we live in a tough day and age. We live in a tough culture, and specifically because of the way our city is wired. Our city is very materialistic. And at the end of the day, I think what this passage helps us realize is what it is that we're giving our lives to. Like, if you just stop for a moment and think about some of the truths we've already unpacked, when you boil it down, the things that we're trying to give so much of our life to are just temporary things. Like it's a collection of the things we dug up from the dirt. We formed into a specific shape. We slapped a logo on it, and we added value to it, and we chase it. And it ends up in a junk pile a few years later, and that's what we devoted our entire life to, the accumulation of that stuff, the purchase of that stuff, the living for that stuff. And no amount of purchasing can ever satisfy and fulfill the inner longings of your soul. Amen. But we think they will. All the advertising going on right now for Black Friday, right, and Cyber Monday, 
and heading into Christmas will teach you and try to convince you that, yeah, if you just had this thing, you'd be better off. If you could just acquire this, you'd be so happy. And if you made this purchase, then you'll be complete. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I've made a big purchase, you'll be happy for a season. And then you go back to feeling the way you did before you purchased it. It doesn't last. And to be a good steward is to have a healthy grip on what it is that we're trying to pursue. And it's not bad. It's not wrong to own things. I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. But are these things that we're trying to purchase and pursue and accumulate worth our life, our devotion, our sacrifice? Can they eternally satisfy your soul? The scripture would say no. It can't. You're trying to have this stuff do something that only God can do in your life. And every time you do that, you end up at a dead-end road. So not only does kingdom-focused stewardship require that we surrender to God and his ways, it also requires sacrifice. Here's our third truth from this passage. Stewardship requires sacrifice. First Chronicles 29, 20 through 21 says this, Then David said to the whole assembly, Blessed be the Lord your God. So the whole assembly praised the Lord God of their ancestors. They knelt low and they paid homage to the Lord and the king. And the following day they offered sacrifices to the Lord and burnt offerings to the Lord. A thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, along with their drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And what you see is this incredible outpouring of even more generosity as they were celebrating the generosity from the chapter before. And a principle that we see often in the Old Testament reinforced in the New is seen here that people want to give God their first and their best. I think that's what we see demonstrated through King David and the people. They wanted to give God their first. They wanted to give God their best. And we're introduced to this word here in this text, a sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is something of value that you offer up to God as an act of worship, as an act of devotion, or maybe as an act of penance. Here, they were physically giving animals to be sacrificed. They were bringing drinks to be sacrificed. There were peace offerings being made, and they were, in turn, being able to celebrate together. And the sacrifices and the worship offered to God reinforced their heart, po- their heart posture. This is what's cool about this passage. They've already given physically of a lot of their wealth and accumulation, and then they went above and beyond and gave even more as an act of worship. Like, God, so that you know our heart is in the right place, and because we recognize that you've lavishly given us your grace, that you have loved us so much, we now want to worship you and honor you even more. It says they knelt low and they paid homage to God. They blessed God, and their offerings, their sacrifices reinforced this posture of their heart. With these gifts and offerings and sacrifices, the people not only demonstrated gratitude to God, but they also expressed that they trusted him. We're in some tough economic times. There's no doubt about it. It's a tough season, and I don't want to downplay that. It is really hard. And yet when you're generous to God, you're expressing a couple things. One, you're giving because God has given to you, so you're grateful to God. And two, you're saying, God, I trust you. I know that you can take care of me and my family. And that's what the people here are doing. They're saying, God, we love you, we're grateful for you, and God, we trust you. That we can trust you. And that's what God desires from us. At that moment, the Lord sees their heart posture. 
At that moment, the Lord knows that he is truly Lord of their life, that they are finding their fulfillment in God, not in their possessions, that they find purpose in God, not in their accumulation of more stuff. God is what they're truly after, and this reveals their heart. And let's transition to our final point. Surrender and sacrifice eventually lead to satisfaction in the Lord. Here's our fourth truth. Stewardship, when done properly, results in satisfaction in the Lord. Look at verse 22. Short and sweet, they ate and drank with great joy in the Lord's presence that day. Isn't that amazing? What an awesome time. Like, the overflow of this worship service is they all got together as God's people, and they ate good food, they drank some good stuff, and they enjoyed being in God's presence that day. Isn't that amazing? The sacrifices led to feasting. Come on, somebody. That's some brisket that was thrown down that day. I know it. Right? Amen. Let's go. When a person gets to this point, they are generously and sacrificially giving back to the Lord. And when they start to do that consistently, they start to experience the true joy of being in God's presence, delighted that they are being faithful and genuine with their worship, that they are using everything that God has entrusted to them, and they're giving it to the Lord and using it rightfully as a way to worship God. And their giving brought great joy before the Lord. So powerful, so rich. This kingdom-focused stewardship that we see here in the text expresses that you are truly content and satisfied in the Lord. And I think that's something we struggle with, right? Like, are you content? Are you satisfied? And there's different things that we all desire. The desires in and of themselves are not bad, not wrong. But you have to question your motives. Like, why do I desire this thing so much? Am I trying to find fulfillment in it? Am I trying to find my ultimate satisfaction in this thing? Is my apartment not enough? Do I really need one more room? Do we really need one more bathroom? Like, do I need a bigger house? Do I need a better car? Like, what is this thing that I'm devoting so much of my time, energy, and resources to acquire? And why do I want it so bad? Like, is that what's going to bring me satisfaction? Is that going to seal the deal of contentment if I just had this thing? What you see in this passage is the people are just content to be in God's presence. As they practice generosity, as they sacrifice and offer to God their stuff, they experience great joy before the Lord. I have a lot of people that will come up at some point and say, Pastor, how do I know that I'm bringing glory to God? Like, how do I know that my life is bringing joy to God? And man, there's a lot of different ways you can answer that. And so I'm not trying to say this is a one-size-fits-all. But there was this quote that I read many, many years ago, many years ago, and it's become very popular, but I think it helps us. If we start to think through life from this perspective, so I'm going to put the quote on the screen. It's by a pastor and theologian named John Piper, and he writes it this way. It says, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Think about that for a moment. You want to glorify God? Like, how do you bring honor and glory to God? Be satisfied in him and him alone. It's like, God, I love you, and, and I want part of you. But I also want this thing, because this is what's going to give me complete satisfaction. That expression is, God, you're not enough. I need you and some more stuff. Like, I like having you in my life. It's good, but you're not enough. And what this quote is helping us see is that God is going to be most glorified in you and your life when you've come to the point in your life where you find that you are most satisfied in God. 
When you find fulfillment in God, when you recognize your identity is in God, when you get to that spot, you will truly experience joy and satisfaction. So as we wrap up this sermon series, let's kind of recap some of these principles that we've learned and talked about. And I want to just go back to what we started off with, that kingdom-focused stewardship recognizes that God is the owner and the giver of everything that we have. If we're going to be good stewards, we have to start here, that we recognize God is the one true owner and giver of everything that we have, that our money is God's money, and that our spending is God's spending. We are called to use our possessions and wealth to bless God and bless others. As we call the worship team to come back up here in a moment, we're going to have a time of reflection. And so we're going to call the worship team up. And I want to talk to you and I give you space to just process a lot of what we've heard and talked about so far throughout this series. And so if you could, like at this moment, I want everyone right here to just close your eyes, bow your head. And I want to ask you some questions to prompt you to have a conversation with God. So no one looking around, just you and God. I'm not going to ask you to do anything up here. I'm not going to ask you to respond to me. This is you and God having a conversation. And the first question I want you to wrestle with and talk to God about is how are you managing, how are you stewarding the different resources and the gifts that God has given you? And talk to him about it. Talk about your spiritual gift. Maybe talk to him about some of the talents that you have in life. Talk about the way you're using your time. Talk to him about how you're using your wealth and your accumulation of stuff. How are you managing what God has entrusted to you? no one looking around, I want to ask you another question. I want you to ask God to reveal to you what is the thing that maybe you have been chasing after more fervently than God? What's the thing that's been consuming your thoughts, your drive, your passion, your energy? What is that thing that you've been chasing after that you've kind of placed at a level above God in your pursuits? What is that thing? similar fashion to King David's request for his son, would you take a moment as the Lord has brought that thing to mind, can you ask God to help you to have an undivided heart that is fully devoted and fully committed to him? Help him. Ask him to help you overcome that thing.
can look up this way. As we come to a close, I just want to remind us in this series, even last week, we talked about the posture of our heart in giving, and we talked about the motivation for giving was one of our sermons. And we're reminded of not only does God own everything and is over everything, but the reason you and I give back to God is because he first gave to us. We sang about it earlier. What a beautiful song. And that, to me, is what's going to help us unlock a generous church. When our people, when we rally around together to celebrate and to recognize everything that we have received from God through Jesus Christ, that this precious gift that God has given to us in the form of sending his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless, perfect life on this earth, to then ultimately die a death on the cross that he didn't deserve, to take our place on the cross, to pay the penalty for our sin with his sacrifice and his death on the cross. And then later to go to the grave and three days later to conquer the grave, to prove through his resurrection that he is who he said he is, that he is truly God in the flesh. And that as a result of this beautiful sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have been extended an invitation to repent of our sins and to place our faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and through the resurrection. And in exchange, we receive the righteousness of Jesus applied to our accounts, that we're granted new life, that we're given eternity with God, the grace of God so lavishly spent on our behalf. That's why we give. We give in response to the goodness we give in response to the generosity of God. That's our motivation. That's why we give. It's not a guilt trip. It's not trying to be domineering. It's not trying to coerce people. That's the wrong posture. We already saw in this text. God sees through all of that. We give from an upright heart, as King David says. We give willingly and joyfully, as the people of Israel did, because we recognize everything we have comes from God. The goodness and the grace I've received comes from God. The breath I have in my lungs comes from God. The ability I have to walk comes from God. Everything you and I do on this life is the direct result of what God has given us. So I want to encourage you. I don't know where you are in your journey of generosity, but I want to challenge you to take a step towards God. I have a pastor I love listening to. He's a pastor in Tennessee, and he shared this phrase that has stuck with me. And he said it this way, and I'm going to share it with you. God blesses obedience, and God blesses movement toward him. I love that. It's so simple, but so powerful. And so no matter where you are in your journey of generosity, I want to encourage you, take a step towards God. God blesses movement toward him.